Table Prez. My name is Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's printed word out in front of them. We're looking at our last series, a sermon on uh, Lent. We're looking at 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, we're going to read right now the first 14 verses, but really this whole morning we're going to look at the whole chapter because this whole chapter goes together. But I didn't want to make you stand for like six minutes, so we'll just read the first 14 verses and then we'll dive in. Uh, friends, with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord to us out of 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman and the little girl, the prophet in a river. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man and his master, and he was in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the Lord, the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Arbana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and, and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's uh, pray as we study the story of Naaman. Now, Father, we love your word, and we love the opportunity to gather together in the name of Jesus, uh, in step with the Spirit, to worship you and to praise you. Now, Father, we look forward to taking communion together. Now, Lord, we look forward to hearing your Spirit speak to us through your holy and inerrant word. Father, we pray that you would remove any stubbornness, any pride, any greed, uh, any hardness of heart from me and from everyone in this room and everyone watching online. Father, would you restore our hearts like that of a little child? And Father, we thank you for the waters of baptism, for the waters of Jordan that washed Naaman clean. 
And Lord, thank you that we can be born again of the spirit and of water. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we finish up our Lenten series, I've been going through sort of week by week about ways that you and I can see sin more clearly. Uh, Lent is an opportunity for you and me to examine ourselves, to keep in step with the Spirit more uh, diligently. And uh, this is uh, going to be a wonderful story uh, for us uh, to finish our Lenten series because uh, this is an incredibly complex story of a proud man who is made new uh, by faith in the one true God. And it's the story of an incredible little unnamed girl who forgives her master and leads him to life itself. And it's the story of a cowardly king and a king who doesn't know his left hand from the right hand. And it's the story, we didn't get to it though, we will in a few, minute, a few minutes, of a servant to a great man of God who betrays him. And uh, it's no surprise uh, that this story will reappear in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, this story I think is so uh, important that uh, I would suggest to you that it's one of the most important stories you can know in the entire Old Testament. And the reason I say that is because it appears in a very interesting place in the New Testament, in the story of Jesus. And so uh, let me just ask you this. Have you, ever, have you ever listened to a message or a sermon? If, you, if your answer is yes, don't say this one out loud for me. If you ever listened to a sermon and wanted to kill the preacher? <laughs> have you ever had that feeling where you've listened to somebody and been so angry at what's being said uh, that you're, you have a visceral, physical reaction? Uh, well, that's very similar to what happens when the New Testament picks up on the story of Naaman. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, in Jesus's first sermon that he ever gives, as far as we know, the first sermon that the Gospels record in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is preaching. And what's his text? Does anybody know? He opens up the scroll to which, which Old Testament prophet? Isaiah. He goes to Isaiah. And then he, you know, preaches on Isaiah. But then something changes in the middle of his sermon. And in Luke chapter 4, we read this. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. This is Jesus' sermon. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So, for some reason, this story of Naaman the Syrian are fighting words. <laughs> These are fighting words, apparently. And Jesus uses this story in what we know of as his first sermon. And people get so upset by this reference to Naaman the Syrian that they're ready to throw Jesus off a cliff. But because his hour had not yet come, Jesus passes through their midst and he leaves. 
So, what, so that means, I would suggest to you, that it's important for you and me, who are the disciples of Jesus, who study his teachings to understand what's going on in this story and why Jesus, when he's preaching, pulls Naaman out as an illustration for something, <laughs> something that had such fighting words to it that some people reacted like they were ready to physically kill Jesus. So with that, what is actually going on in the story of Naaman the Syrian? Well, let's look together. Look at 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, and let's see if you can understand maybe why some people hated Jesus' reference to this story. It says, Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of which country? Syria. All right, so uh, you don't have to study the Bible extensively, but do you think Syria, is that the good guy or the bad guy in the Bible? <laughs> Right? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel, they are the good guys. They're all the other nations. As we studied last week, they're all the descendants of the scattering of the Tower of Babel, right? God scatters the nations at the Tower of Babel, each with its own language. Deuteronomy says uh, that it's a portion to the number of the sons of God. So we have these foreign nations. Sometimes they ally, them, ally themselves with Israel. Sometimes, most of the time, they don't. And so we're introduced to a non-Israelite, non-God-worshipping man named Naaman. He's from the wrong religion, the wrong ethnic group. And in fact, Syria oftentimes is antagonistic to Israel, right? This explains why the king of Israel responds like, oh, the king of Syria, he's just trying to come up with a pretense to invade me. So what do we learn about Naaman? Well, is he important or is he unimportant? Well, he's the commander of the army of the king of Syria, so he's worked his way up. He is a military genius. He is an important man. And you know how I know he's important? Because it tells us right there. He's what? He's a great man with his master, right? He has a well-respected reputation. And the king of Syria highly regards him. And in fact, not only is he a great man, it goes on to tell us he's in high favor. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Think about that sentence for just a second. The author of 2 Kings understands that God's control over the nations is so utterly comprehensive that even the, the pagan, the Gentile kings, are actually still guided by the hand of the Lord. And whatever victories Naaman has, ultimately it's because the Lord allowed him to have those victories. So far from being disinterested in the foreign nations, God is highly interested in the foreign nations. And then to sort of continue down who Naaman is, he was a mighty man of valor. Uh, this is the same phrase uh, that we get for the judge Gideon. He is a mighty man of valor. He's brave, and he was a great uh, man of war. But then surprisingly, and sort of in the Hebrew, it's very abrupt. As great as Naaman is, as important as he is, as well-respected as he is, he also has something in his life uh, that is sort of a thorn in his side. And what is it? Well, in the Hebrew, it says he's a leper. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the Hansen's disease that you and I are thinking of. Uh, it could refer to any level of skin disease or a boil or anything. Apparently, he, it's, it's affecting him so much that he has to go to another country to get healed, but it hasn't so affected him that he's able to still command the army. So uh, whether or not it was Hansen's disease, he has something that's deeply bothering him and it would affect every aspect of his life, right? There's this very proud man, and yet he has this deep wound, this, this shame, if you will. 
Now, what's even more interesting is we learn that the Syrians sometimes raid the land of Israel. Sometimes they'll just invade along the border. I mean, could you imagine another country raiding another country along the border? I mean, this is Old Testament stuff. I know it's really hard to draw parallels between the Old Testament and modern day life, but just try to imagine something like that happening. So the Syrians on one of their raids had done what? Verse 2, they had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. Perhaps her father died defending his home. Uh, Perhaps he was away in the battle and they captured her. But we're introduced to a little Israelite girl who is taken captive, a prize of war, and she's brought to work for Naaman's wife. Uh, This little girl stands in the incredible stream of all the godly people who have ever been elect exiles, living in a land not theirs, serving kings and rulers who don't share their faith convictions, but nevertheless love and bless their enemies. Think of the young man Joseph. Who was Joseph's boss in the Old Testament? Pharaoh. Anybody want to send in your resume to work for Pharaoh? Imagine uh, how he would have to uh, duck often to be faithful to the Lord and yet serve Pharaoh. Or think about Daniel or Ezra. Or think about the story of Esther and how her relative Mordecai saved the life of King Ahasuerus. Mordecai saved his life. Uh, There are many, many, many faithful believers in the Lord who have worked for very wicked people, and yet they choose to bless those who abuse and persecute them. They choose to pray for those who persecute them. You see, knowing God does not mean that you are okay with abuse. It means that the way you subvert it and stop it is different than anything else this world has to offer. As Paul will tell Christians in Romans, do not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with what? Social media posts. Yard signs. Bumper stickers. Anger. No, what does Romans say? Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Somebody can impress me. Hopefully some of you know this. What does Jesus say? How are we supposed to respond to those who are our enemies? Pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. See, this little girl is a wonderful shining diamond behind the black cloth of a lot of men who don't quite get it. It's almost like she has faith like a child. What does she do? She chooses by grace to bless her master. She goes to his wife, Naaman's wife. We don't know her name either. And she says, well, would would he go to Israel? If you would go to the one true God, there's a guy who could heal him. And uh, because he's so desperate to get this healed, right, to get this addressed. He is so desperate, right? What does he do? You know, he hops on a plane and flies down to Mexico for treatment. No, that's not what he does, but not too far off from that. 
Naaman, look at verse 4. Naaman went in and told his lord, that is the king of Syria, he says, this and this, this and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. I don't, you know, he doesn't go into the details. Yeah, he's like, well, this little slave girl of mine told me that there's somebody who can heal me, right? He kind of brushes over uh, who this little girl is, but he says, hey, you know, maybe it's worth a shot. And how does the king of Syria respond? Well, this shows us how important Naaman is. And what does the king of Syria say? He says, well, go and I'll, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. But notice again um, the subtle change that happens. The little girl says what? Who does the little girl tell him to go see? He says there's a prophet who represents the one true God. Go to him and he'll cure you. And so Naaman goes to his boss and he's like, oh yeah, maybe in Israel I can get cured. And the king says, I'll write a letter to the king. Interesting. He's He's supposed to go to whom? The prophet. But instead, the king, thinking politically, can only think in political terms, and he sends him to whom? The king. So a letter is sent to the king, and so Naaman goes, this is verse 5, and he takes with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. Now, uh, the 10 changes of clothes, that's a whole, I mean, you have a wonderful wardrobe. Everyone is really well-dressed in our church. But if you only had 10 changes of clothes, you wouldn't think that's very many. But 10 changes of clothes is a ton, okay? (laughs) I know like 6,000 shekels and then like 10 seems like a very small number, but this is an incredibly over-the-top amount of stuff, okay? This is, uh, I mean, it's it's like one of Jesus' parables almost. It's more akin to like $750 million. I mean, this is like a huge astronomical amount of money and goods, Again, this is showing us exactly how important Naaman is, that the king would give him a king's ransom to get him cured. And so Naaman, thinking like any person of the world would think, says, okay, well, if I'm going to get healed from this God, I better pay my way. I better bring my dues. And so Naaman comes and he brings this letter and all of this stuff to the king of Israel. And what does the letter say? Look at verse 6. When this letter reaches you, this is from the king of Syria, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. (laughs) Right? Because the king of Syria thinks, well, what do prophets do? Prophets do whatever the king says. What do the gods do? Well, the gods just do whatever the prophet does. You know, the prophet does his little magic trick, and uh, he does it for a price of some money. And so I'll give a bunch of money, and then the king will tell the prophet what to do, which will sort of manipulate the god into doing the magic trick that will cure him. Right? That logic making sense to you, right? This is the mentality of the king of Syria, right? This is the gods that they understand. Well, you know, you you appease the gods, you give them some gold, you you know um, sweeten the deal with their prophet, and then maybe the prophet will do what you want him to do. But of course, uh, the king of Israel reads the letter, and he's only thinking in what kind of terms? Does he even? Oh, I'll think about this. What does the king of Israel offer for a solution? Does he say, "Well, I can't cure you"? but I know who can. Is that what the king of Israel says? So what does the little girl know that this proud man doesn't? What does this little girl know that the king of Israel doesn't? She knows that there's a prophet, which means there's a one true God who really can do this. But the king of Israel doesn't seem to have the basic faith of this little girl. Because all he can think of is in terms of politics, 
right? The only logical explanation is this guy is just trying to start another war. He's raided me before, and he's going to choose to raid me all over again. I mean, he even pleads, right? Only consider and see how this man is seeking a quarrel with me. Although you see that in verse 7? And when the king of Israel hears this, he's so distraught that he tears his own clothes, right? And we don't know how word gets around, but the king tearing his clothes, that message eventually makes its way to the prophet by God's providence. And how does Elisha, the prophet, respond? Look at verse 8. Now, Elisha, the man of God, it's another way of saying the prophet, the one who speaks authoritatively on behalf of God, this authoritative prophet heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. So he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Don't you love it when the Bible asks questions like that? I love a good question. Why have you torn your clothes? And, and what, it's a rhetorical question, right? But what's the point? Why have you torn your clothes? Don't you know who the one true God is? Don't you know that this is as nothing to the Lord? He could do this in the blink of an eye. Why are you so distraught? Why is the only category you can think of politics? Why did you tear your clothes? Why are you distraught? And I love what Elisha says. Elisha says, let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And of course, Elisha is not trying to make much of himself. The point is, is where there's a prophet, there's a true God. And that's what he wants Naaman to know. And so what happens? Well, so verse 9, Naaman comes with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Remember, this is a lot of pomp and circumstance. He is an important man, right? Uh, he is the commander of the army of Syria. He comes with a king's ransom, and he parades around in front of the prophet's house. And then what does Elisha do? Does he come out wearing his priestly garb, you know? Does he come, or excuse me, his prophetly garb? Does he come out with a lot of pomp and circumstance? Does he match the man's pride? Well, what does he do in verse 10? Elisha eh, sent a messenger to him. <laughs> oh, is somebody at the door? Uh, go check it. Remember back in the old days when you used to answer the door? Remember that? <laughs> now you hide and you act like you're not at home. I don't know when that happened. That was uh, several years ago. But now when people knock, you're like, no one move. <laughs> Send the servant. You know, if they really need us, they'll text us. Maybe they'll leave it at the door. Well, this big parade, the chariots come, you know, and they want Elisha to come out. But Elisha instead sends Gehazi, his messenger. Um, you know, let, let my little messenger talk to this big, important guy. And uh, the messenger, you know, comes out with a little piece of paper, and uh, he's like, oh, uh, hello, uh, you know, chariots and army. I have a little note from my boss. Uh, he says, uh, take two aspirin and call him in the morning. And then he goes back inside. Essentially, that's what he tells Naaman. Oh, you got, you got a skin problem? Well, just, you know, the Jordan's right there. You know, I don't know, 20, 25 miles away. Just go dunk around there for a couple times. Yeah, go, go seven times. Go up and down seven times and you'll be fine. You know, take two aspirin, call me in the morning. Now, how do you think this very important man is feeling? He's feeling disrespected. And there's nothing that a proud man hates more than feeling disrespected. So what does Naaman do? 
Look at verse 11. Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand and call upon the name of the Lord over the place, right? He was like, I thought he was going to do the magic trick. He should come meet me himself. He should wave his hands around, and he should conjure the healing. How dare he send his messenger and tell me to go splash around in that little mud, you know, ditch, you know? Um, have you ever seen the mud ditch back on the back of our church property? I think we should, I think I've always suggested we name it the Young River after Pastor Larry Young, but <laughs> he hates that idea because it's not so much a river and it's not even a creek. It's more like a ditch. And sometimes there's water and sometimes there's mud back there. But I think it's really beautiful and charming and I don't know that it has a name. So, you know, maybe if I'm here for 33 years, it'll be the Jernigan Ditch or something like that. I don't know. The point is, when you go back there, it's not very impressive, right? If you were going there to get clean, you'd be like, ah, I don't want to go in there. There's reeds in it and stuff. Well, how does Naaman feel about going into the Jordan River? Some of you, some of you have been in the Jordan Raise your hand if you've been in the Jordan River. Okay, what did the water taste like? Did, did no one drink it? No. It's like the color of the wood, right? It's pretty, it's not clear, you know? It's not like you're in like, you know, Cabo or anywhere, you know? And what does Naaman think of the Jordan? He says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? He says, we've got mountain-fed springs. We've got all this beautiful, clear water coming down from Mount Hermon. You think I need to go splash around in there? So all that to say, why, why, let's just pause. Why does Elisha tell him to do this? You know, he's thinking there's going to be some sort of magic trick, right? Naaman thinks there's going to be some kind of like, you know, priestly motion that he's going to make. So why does Elisha send a servant out and then tell him to go in the Jordan River seven times? It's very similar to the way that Jesus will heal people in the New Testament. It's because people don't just need physical healing. They need spiritual healing. They don't just need their skin to be made new. They need to be made new from the inside out. Naaman needs to be not just cleansed of his leprosy, but cleansed of his pride. He needs to become a new person. And the first step in the kingdom is humility and knowing who God is. And if God says, go down into the waters, you go. Naaman needs to be cleansed not just outwardly with his skin, but inwardly of his heart. So, Elisha says to go, so what does he do? Well, look at verse 12. So he turned and went away in a rage. Right, He was about to get back on his chariots, ride back to Syria. But there is a spark within Naaman that I do want to celebrate, which is Naaman is willing to receive advice and instruction. He's willing to receive the advice of a little girl, and he's willing to listen to his servants. And he must be somewhat of a good guy because they don't call him commander, they call him father. So there's some kind of deeper level of respect between Naaman and his servants. They say, father, my father, this great man, this is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said, wash and be clean? 
You know, I think their point is, well, if, if he had said to, you know, run a hundred miles backwards, wouldn't you have done that? If he had said he wanted all of the gold in Syria, wouldn't you have found a way to give it? And now all he's asking you to do is a small thing. Will you not do a small? You were willing to do a great thing for your salvation. Why are you not willing to humble yourself for your salvation? And to his credit, Naaman takes their advice. In verse 14, what happens? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Now, going into the part we didn't finish, uh, what I want you to realize is this is a story not just about Naaman's pride being cleansed. This is actually a story of how God's grace works in our lives and in all the people that he has saved. And this is getting to why Jesus talks about this story. Because notice what happens next. Look at verse 15. After Naaman has been cleansed, and he is like a newborn child. Hmm. His faith has made him like a newborn child. Interesting, right? And he's been cleansed by the waters. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And Naaman came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Friends, this is conversion. There is no other God except the one true God, the God of Israel. He has been born not just of new flesh, but of a new heart. And like many new believers and many people who don't know the free grace of God, he says, God has saved me. Now let me contribute to my salvation. Now, will you please take all of my silver and gold so that it can be a joint venture of salvation? God's grace plus my good works and plus my wealth. And together, we can work together to save me. But what does Elisha do? How does he respond to this idea that it's God's grace plus what Naaman has to offer? Well, giving God, your best is a great thing unless you think it has to do with your salvation. And so Elisha is now worried that God's free grace could be compromised in Elisha's mind. And so Elisha does not want this man to think that God's grace comes at a price from us. So what does Elisha say? As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. I don't want any of your silver and gold. I don't want any of your clothes. And Naaman urged him to take it. Please take it. But what does Elisha do? He refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any other god but the Lord. In this matter, though, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, Leaning on my arm, I bow myself in the house of Ryman, and please pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said, go in peace. You see, what's interesting here is Elisha refuses to mix any of God's free grace with any contribution from a man or any person. And then what's interesting is Naaman then says something that we don't quite understand. But if you have the Old Testament view of life, you would. He says, well, when I go back home to Syria, I can't just go to the first church of the God of Israel in Syria because that doesn't exist. 
But what I can do is, will you give me some dirt from the land of Israel so that I can put it somewhere in my house so that when I worship the one true God, I can stand on Israeli soil, right? Very similar, uh, you know, when someone goes to Israel, they may bring back a trinket or, you know, a jar of dirt or water. Well, that's what he wants to do because he would uh, have that kind of worldview that if he's going to worship God, he needs to be standing not on Syrian soil, but Israeli soil. Of course, Jesus goes on in the Gospels to say that it won't matter whether you're on this mountain or on that mountain one day because in the kingdom of God, God will be seeking people who worship him in spirit and in truth. And your physical location won't matter. But for Naaman, all he can think of is he's a new convert and he wants to worship the one true God. And you know what Elisha says is he says, go in peace. He literally says, shalom, (laughs) shalom, you're good. But what's interesting is he also says, but I've got this master. I've got to help my king. You know, sometimes I'm always with him and he holds on to my hand. You know, maybe he's elderly and he he struggles to stand up. He doesn't want a cane, so he wants to rely on me. And when he worships his God, I've got to, you know, hold him up. And so I may have to bow down with him, but I don't mean it. Is that okay? And what's fascinating is uh, many of us would say, don't do that. How dare you? Don't compromise. But of course, God's reaction to Naaman is more gracious than sometimes we might be, because Elisha says, go in peace. And I think this is worth thinking about. This is one of those thoughts that you should reflect on. And I think the best explanation I have is that Elisha understands this Gentile man to be very new in the faith. And he has a sensitive heart, you know, um, He's got like new believer smell. You know, you know what that smell smells like? When you get a new car and you're like, oh, new car smell. It's so great. It's just so sweet. Every now and then, you know, we meet someone who comes to faith in Jesus. They just have new believer smell. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, a lady in our church came to Christ. And uh, I remember she asked me, she said, I have this big question. Do I have to get my tattoos removed before I can become a Christian? And I said, yes. No. <laughs> and I do it myself. No, I just said, oh, no, no. But I love that she was willing to get them removed because she had new believer smell to her. Whatever God wants me to do, I'm going to do it, right? And this is that new believer smell in Naaman. Hey, I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking of every possible scenario. I want to be true to this one true God. And if I have to help my, you know, boss bow down to his God, I don't mean it. Is that okay? Will God forgive me? And Elisha says, calm down. Yes, go in peace. Shalom. God knows your heart. Now, I wish we could go on to the story of Gehazi and how this servant of Elisha actually steals from Naaman. He lies to him. Uh, but friends, I guess uh, to wrap up, if we can, with our our time at the end. When Jesus is giving his first sermon, and before they try to throw him off the cliff, Jesus mentions Naaman, the Syrian. And why does Jesus make that point? And how does this story show us not just a proud heart, but also show us God's free grace? How is this a foreshadowing of the gospel? Well, it's very simple. A proud man humbles himself, submits to the one true God, listens to the man of God. And this man of God says that God's free grace is available for anyone 
regardless of whether they are a man or woman, whether they are an important man or they are a little girl, whether they are from the right side of the Jordan or the wrong side of the Jordan. And God's grace is free. Now, friends, when you and I come to faith in the one true God, we are like Naaman. We must be born again. We don't just need physical healing. We need to be made new from the inside. As Jesus says, unless you are born of spirit and of the water, you have no part with me. In John 3, he says what? You must become like a little child. You must be born again. Jesus loved this story because it's a reminder of God's free grace. And so when you and I worship and know the one true God, when we come to the communion table, we don't come with God's grace plus our good works. It's not God's grace plus all of the trappings of all of the 10 changes of clothes that we could offer God. You know what we're like? We're like little children with empty hands. We are like Naaman, only capable of being cleansed by the power of God. And friends, when God's free grace, his gift of grace becomes clear to you, friends, it makes you a brand new person from the inside out. Christ bore the punishment of your sins and he throws open the doors of heaven itself to you. And we don't earn it, we receive it. Just like Naaman. Friends, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this story and uh, Father, we pray that as we enter Holy Week next week, that more and more we would be like Naaman, washed clean. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would wash away uh, the old patterns of life. Uh, Lord, that more and more the old man of sin uh, would lose its voice, and more and more we would be new creations in Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be empowering us more and more to keep in step with you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.